Welcome to the 165th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 130 years since England and Nottinghamshire captain Arthur Carr was born. Famous as an advocate for Bodyline, he is also responsible for one of the great cricketing letters, which he wrote in 1933 to the Nottinghamshire Secretary. I'm going to quote selectively, but there are some rather wonderful bits. Dear Brown, this is the most awful team I have ever had. The batting is awful and the bowling, my God, I have not got a bowler. If anyone would like to take on my job, they can have it. I hope it rains for the rest of the season. Yours, (laughs) Arthur Carr. I hope it rains for the rest of the season. Do you know if he was, if this was kind of tongue in cheek or was he, um, you know, seriously frustrated and out of there? He sounds pretty seriously frustrated and out of there. I think he was pretty miserable. Yeah. And the, the, as I said, the, I, this, these are the good bits, but the rest of the letter continues in this fairly pessimistic tone. There are some wonderful anecdotes about Arthur Carr in that book by Duncan Hamilton on um, Harold Larwood. Do you remember that book? I can't uh, remember yes, what it's called. Carr was a big def- I think it is just Larwood, isn't it? I think Carr was a big defender of Larwood, wasn't he? He was. He was also quite a boozer who apparently once drove up the front steps of a hotel into the bar, drove a car up the front steps into the bar to demand a drink because he was so, so desperate. So anyway, um, on from Arthur Carr in this episode, um, you've been to Lords, you, you lucky man. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about Fowler's Match and we're going to be reviewing Gilbert, the last years of WG race published in 2015 um so tell me about this you managed to get get to lords i got to lords although as you're about to find out i got to lords for less time than i'd hoped so i'd arranged to meet a friend at lords last saturday and we couldn't make the morning session so we were going to meet after lunch you know sensible enough plan on friday afternoon however i saw that middlesex were conspiring against our lovely plan because they'd followed on against somerset so were we going to get any cricket after lunch so I was frantically following the scorecard and Middlesex seemed to be rescuing the situation. Just a single wicket lost before close on Friday and they were only three down as I began the stroll in beautiful you know, May sunshine down to Lords. But as I walked down listening to the game on BBC Radio, the wicket started to tumble hmm. and sort of my, my stomach started to plummet as, this, as, as, as my beautiful afternoon at Lords kind of got further and further away. And by the time I arrived at Lords at lunch, Middlesex was six down and still needed a hundred to make Somerset bat again. So as I explained to the um, lovely man at the counter, I said, "You know, I'm I'm in danger of only watching four balls of cricket." Yeah, exactly. Here. So how and, about did they charge well, you for no, a full? <laughs> they charge. They charge the full wax. So if you, um, for those of you, a lot of counties do an after tea discount. So Lords, for example, yeah. will do um, a tenner after tea and it's 20 quid for, a, for a, a normal day. And I think a lot of counties, I think the Oval will actually let you in free after tea. So there's a, there's a tip for you there. Um, but the Lords, uh, the Lords ticket official kindly but politely informed me that no, there would be no discount. So, you know. And how much was a full ticket for was, this? That was 20 quid for what could have been four balls of cricket. So not... And But, but, but how much did did you see in the end so i saw an hour and a half so it's hard to defend it as value for money really um it could and that was an hour and a half of tail enders it was it was it was um (coughs) 
it would probably be a stretch to say the Middlesex tail wagged, but they sort of batted with enough intents to sort of keep things going. Um, I had, it looked probable at one stage that they would make Somerset bat again, which would at least give us you know a little bit more time. Um, but sadly, when the wickets when the first wicket fell, they did all rather go down in a heap. Um, and it was sort of one of my conclusions, and I think cricket does this all to us, doesn't it? You know, we've all booked that you know day at a Test match that we've desperately looked forward to, and then lost it for weather or other things and it was a reminder that, that cricket doesn't respect your plans and you know I, I, I love the game but it can be infuriating um, it was also a reminder of what a mad thing the game can be from a commercial perspective I mean it was 3 o'clock 3, 3.30 when we finished and the sun is beaming at Lords. Mm, There's all mm. these happy people who would love to stay, buy drinks, etc. Yes. And instead, the lawnmowers are out, and yep. that's the end of the day. And you think, what a mad thing this is! As a sort could they, of, could they try a little harder? Yeah, it reminds me of I remember in the early 2000s being very excited as a kind of you know young teenager um, of going to Lords for an England Bangladesh test and. I think Bangladesh had, you know, um, we're going to lose by an innings and had, were seven, you know, maybe six down um, on the morning that we went and two of the wickets fell as we were wait, queuing to go into the ground because our train was late and that kind of feeling of disappointment. You're right that it's it's kind of, you know, kind of mother cricket as it were, you know, showing that, that we are subject to her whims. But at the same time, as well as the commercial point you make, the other thing that's kind of ridiculous sometimes is that we don't have more cricket, more kind of first days of games happening at the weekend as well that you can actually get to the stage that by a Saturday when the majority of people can go the game's over surely yeah. you'd, you'd actually start more games on a say on a Friday and then um, or even started on a Saturday and get the best cricket in front of the biggest audience I think that's exactly right because what's even worse was that there, there was supposed to be a Sunday so that's a whole day that presumably lots lots of people would have gone I mean it was a glorious weekend um, but but I, I, I suppose you know that the Middlesex you know if you're going to bat like Middlesex batted you know this is this is the cost of the cost of doing so but as you would know very well, um, an hour and a half at Lords beats an hour and a half um, not at Lords, um, doesn't it, Justin? Now you've been reading about. Uh, well, funny enough, I stumbled across this story by by chance this morning, and it's a very uplifting, uh, a very uplifting story. So, so share it is. So share yes. It. So, so I don't I don't use Twitter very very often. You know, I occasionally kind of flick through and see if anything catches my eye um but today I, I stumbled on this absolutely delightful thread i don't know how the algorithm kind of threw it up for me i don't think let's get into elon musk's twitter al algorithm on this podcast that's not what we're here for um but the it's it's tweeted by um someone whose handle i don't know what what their actual name is but their twitter handle is nb in jail um and they describe themselves as a single mum british indian angry sweaty scruffy hairy intersexual in, intersectional feminist um I, I quote on all of that um and they sent this tweet a couple of days ago while they were kind of cuddling their child to sleep at the end of the day and i think didn't realize that it was gonna it was gonna go viral um what they tweeted about was well there's this thread of around 20 texts which tells the story of being on holiday going down to the local pub um for lunch um and um there's a cricket match happening but it started late because one of the teams is looking for two players and at the bar um her friend gets approached by one of the players oh can you you know can you come and play for our team and he says yeah yeah sure and my other friend um can come and join as well and the team's kind of a little bit snooty about the fact that it's 
well not snooty about the fact that that she's a woman but there's that kind of um uh perhaps all too frequent sense of um oh you know are you actually going to be any good are you going to be able to, to do anything and anyway it turns out that she's actually quite a kind of dab hand she describes herself as a um as a as a decent spin bowling spin bowling all rounder and she played you know plays pretty regularly and she'd be so a what serious pa- school cricketer i think as well does that yeah. come out as well yeah exactly um and so what pa- i mean i'm not gonna you should go, go and look look up the look up the story um but what pans out is this kind of brilliant and hilarious um story where she she ends up you know being asked to bat at number nine the first ball is a wide down leg side that she leaves and then the next ball she kind of hits for a glorious michael vaughan-esque um straight drive um and then ends up taking um five for eight um when she uh, when when she turns out um bowling and then at the end of it and this was particularly kind of relatable well not relatable the bit where she's offered free beers all night for her victory on the cricket pitch because I've never I can't personally relate to that but the bit where she sends a, a, another tweet the day after um, about the fact that she's now horrifically hung over having accepted all of these free beers and whiskeys and her young child is coming in wanting to wanting to play with a new new toy that they that they found um, so anyway just just a, a kind of delightful moment I think it's a lovely story because there's both, as you say, there's that initial um, scepticism of her teammates and then it happily ends with her being sort of very, very welcomed. Fated, and it really, yeah. Any of us who've played in a recreational cricket team will remember this thing and will know this thing very well of how often you are scrambling around for that last player. Mm. And it does lead to some wonderful situations. You know, often at both ends of the spectrum, you get the person who can play a bit who turns out to have represented the West Indies in their youth and the person who can play a bit who, you know, is actually helpless and doesn't know which end of the battle holds. <laughs> who can't hold yeah. the bat, and it does yeah. add a sort of element of entertainment. So, um, yeah, I think it would. It's a story that um, every uh, club cricketer could relate to. From the archives, now there's been a huge amount of debate recently about the Eton Harrow match and its future. And that's inspired Toby to take us back to a memorable contest between the two schools. So when I was reading up about the the current debate, I did just wonder to myself, does the Eton Harry match matter to anyone beyond the twenty two players in that given year and their um, school schoolmates and and parents? Um, and in in researching that, I came across a game which Wisdom described as, in the whole history of cricket, there has been nothing more sensational. And the Times said that a more exciting match can hardly ever have been played. And no, this is not the Ashes in 2005 or any other year. This is the Eton Harry match. This is Fowler's match. Um, so it's 1910, and the Eton Harry game has already been a well-established part of the of the cricketing world. So it started in 1805, which, by the way, makes it the long, uh, the oldest continuous cricket fixture, predating even the establishment of Lords. And by the beginning of the 20th century, it had grown into this quite significant society event. Obviously, the um, the the pupils of Eton and Harrow were uh, the children of the of the well-to-do, um, and themselves grew up to be, you know, part of the part part of the of the ruling classes. Um, and so it was seen as a kind of fairly major um, social event where uh, those kind of social interactions um, played out. And actually, it was covered at that time by the press to a more significant degree than many county games. I guess at that stage, it was part of um, what I think some people. Um, 
would still refer to as the season don't you know this idea of like mm, exactly. henley wimbledon i'm sure i'm missing yep. a few but i'm sure there's some horse racing in there as well and some croquet games but exactly the, the sort of summer sporting events that if you are um a lord lady or otherwise you you go to and i'm sure this was this was part of it at one stage it's the place to be seen yes definitely so going into the game in in 1910 um harrow um are favorites they still had seven players who had featured in the match the year previously to Eaton's one um, and the first day of cricket confirms that that advantage so they only make a fairly slow 232 but Eaton are 40 for five at stumps and a bowled out the next day for 67. Um, now it should be said that this match is happening in um, early July it starts on, on the 8th of July um, but it's a typically British July <laughs> so it's cold and it's overcast and it's perfect conditions for bowling and it's very unideal um, conditions for batting. So um, with a first innings lead of 165, Harrow decides to enforce the follow-on. Um, and that seems to be the right decision because Eaton rapidly find themselves at 47 for four before our friend Bob Fowler strides to the wicket. Now, this possibly is a little bit, you know, spoiler alert, but given that I've already called the game um, Fowler's, <laughs> Fowler's match, um, maybe we'll spend a little bit of time introducing the um, the Eaton captain. So his full name was the rather glorious Robert St. Ledger Fowler. Um, he was 19 at the time of the game. He was the son of a professional Irish soldier. And as was the done thing at the time, um, he was sent, sent back to England by his by his Irish father um, for his education. Um he, um, amusingly, there's an anecdote about the fact that when he he learned how to bowl off spin, he did so by um, bowling repeatedly at the same white chalk mark. You know, a little bit like you know Don Bradman with his you know his stump and his golf ball. You know, scene of perseverance could happen anywhere. Could happen in the back streets of Leeds, but in this particular instance, he had a footman to retrieve the ball for him after he bowled this it every is, single after every single time. This is where we all went wrong, wasn't it? Because now, if you see, if you've got a footman retrieving the ball, you can probably get through a lot more deliveries it's a much more efficient form of practice if you don't have you to ab- get it you absolutely you absolutely can just think of the bowler shane warne could have been if he'd had a footman to, to to help him in his net sessions um so so fowler was in gideon haig's gideon haig has actually written quite a quite a wonderful article on this and he describes um fowler as a bowler of formidable accuracy um and in fact in the previous year's game he'd taken 11 for 79 in a losing in a losing cause um, he doesn't seem to have been a batsman of great note, but here we have him striding to the striding to the crease with his team in considerable power. He decides to go on the attack, um, and he makes a pretty a pretty rapid sixty four that contains um, eight fours. Um, and he's helped by the final Eton pair, who are, by the way, the Honourable John Manners and Kennel Melissa Kay. Um, reading the names on this scorecard is is wonderful, I have to say. Um, so they put together those two put together a frantic fifty partnership at the end of the innings um there's a slightly odd bowling change as well which means that harold alexander who by the way is a future field marshal um is taken off despite taking five wickets with his leg spin which which allows the 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 tail to to run amok a little bit um so eden um uh, managed to um set harrow a target of 55 the match hasn't ended as quickly as it as it might have done but it's, it seems like it's going to end pretty pretty soon um the pitch is also doing is 
doing quite a lot. So um, Harrow employ the heavy roller to, to try and flat, flatten things out. Now Fowler is is here now in his strong suit opening the bowling um, and there's a, a quotation from an old Harrovian in the pavilion recounting what happened next with the first ball and he said it, it looked to break a yard and come off the pitch like a rattlesnake which I think is a wonderful is a wonderful description. If I have a bowl a ball that comes off the pitch like a rattlesnake I'll be pretty happy. So Fowler bowls through the innings um, and of According to contemporary reports, the crucial thing was he didn't try to do too much. He just slightly varied his pace in line um, and he just let the pitch um, and the increasing scoreboard pressure do the rest of the work um, for him. It's interesting, given the reference earlier to the fact that he bowled spin and I mean, maybe he varied, maybe he bowled a variety of things that that, that they would open with him as well. Because I don't know how much still then the convention would have generally been, you know, new ball. Give it to your. I think it was. I think there was just a sense that I think there was a sense that um, they needed to play a bit of a wild card, and that he was by far and away the strongest, the strongest bowler. And because spin had taken so many wickets mm. through the match, I think it felt like it was sort of the sensible option at that point. But yes, I don't think that it was really the dumb thing all that often to um, to open with to open with spin. I suppose though that sometimes in schools cricket you do. Sometimes those rules are broken because you just, if you have an exceptional mm, cricketer mm. at a particular format, they just end up opening the ball. They do everything, don't they? they? Yeah. yeah, exactly, whatever it is that they do. So that so the Harrow innings doesn't really have much to say about it other than it's just a parade of, of, of wickets um, that that starts very, very early. Um, the the opener, Tom, Tom Jameson, scores a 40-minute two. Um, Walter Monkton is, is bowled by a full toss second ball and I think that's a great um, indication of the fact that suddenly kind of panic had set in with these low targets you know they feel very gettable and then suddenly you can't get a run from anywhere and you know you're missing full yes, tosses you can't, exactly you can't blame the full toss on uh, any rattlesnake like spin can you no you certainly cannot um, so there was a 10 run rear guard by Harold Alexander at number 11 but Harrow still fell short by nine runs um fowler good old bob fowler he made eight for 23 which meant he finished the game with 12 wickets and in a low scoring encounter 85 pretty um indispensable runs um now i mentioned earlier one of the players who went on to become a field marshal uh, if you look at the list of people who have played in eton harrow matches they go on to you know occupy some pretty um uh, important positions in uh, various parts of society. What happened to our friend Fowler? Well, um, little did these players know, of course, in in 1910 that what was going to happen to to them and to the world in just a, in just a few years' time. And eight of the 22 on the pitch that day would die in the first First World War. Um, Fowler survived the war. He won the military cross. He played one game for Hampshire in 1924. Um, but his cricketing career and indeed his life was uh, cruelly cut short at the age of 34 from leukemia rather appropriately in the week where Ireland go to Lords for a test match I saw that there is genuine discussion and debate about his legacy that he may be seen as one of the greatest um, Irish cricketers to never play for Ireland so despite as you say a very limited first class career and and, and sadly a very early death um, his accomplishments do seem to have, have lived on the review and for this the 165th episode of reverse prep radio we have been reading gilbert the last years of wg grace it was published in 2015 and written by charlie charlie connolly um who is a 
prolific author, 18 books to his name, including, and I want to read this, Attention All Shipping, in which he visited everywhere named in the BBC's, BBC's shipping forecast. That sounds like a drunk bet in a pub that... You, you end up getting held to, doesn't it? Um, anyway, so so Gilbert, The Last Years of W.G. Grace is a fictional account of the last years of W.G. Grace's um, life from his 50th birthday in 1898 to his death in 1915. Um, this very much falls into the category of what, what we would call a historical fiction. Um, how does Grace's life go with a historical fiction treatment, do you reckon? Well, Connolly's approach is mostly to be very faithful to the historic records. So what we tend to get are these very brief chapters, each with the date as their title, and they generally tell the story of a significant event. So we do get the odd more kind of day-in-the-life stuff, but mostly this is we know there was a famous game, we know there was a party to celebrate his birthday, and we get the story of that. So that, that tends to be his approach. It's it's a very brief book, so it's 190 not very big pages, um, and you can very easily finish it um, in a in a setting. Um, the but the fact that you're right that the kind of events are true, but the telling of them is very much you know what mm-hmm. what happened in the dressing room, what happened out on the pitch, is kind of very much fiction. How did you find the the kind of blurring between? the two the stuff that was historical and the stuff that was fiction did you find that kind of convincing i suppose i ask because there were times when i found myself thinking oh, i'd actually like to know whether that thing actually did happen mm-hmm. or whether that thing's made up yes well it's interesting <clears throat> i mean a lot of it and i wouldn't actually claim i was reflecting on the fact i don't actually read tons of historical fiction and it's not a, no particular prejudice on my part against the genre but for whatever reason it, it's not something I, I read a huge amount of but i was reflecting on the fact that a key part of it is really if you're going to do historical fiction rather than just a history you that playing around with the character's thoughts and consciousness is a big part of it and i think this is something that is clearly a, a bit of a battle for connolly um we get this interview with the journalist where um mm. grace responds i want to help you pour it truly i do but to be perfectly honest with you i didn't feel anything i had too much to do watching the bowling and this does seem to be an interesting challenge for connolly because ideally if you're writing historical fiction you presumably want a character who is you can put big thoughts into their minds all the time, you know, big regrets, grand thoughts about the nature of the world. And to do that with Grace probably feels a bit implausible. Um, so instead we get a little bit of regret. As a man we? of minor thoughts. Yes, yeah. we get him We get him sitting on a bench feeling quite sad about the end of his career, but we don't tend to go um, too much beyond that. I think Connolly broadly gets that balance right, but... Yeah, I, I, I kind of liked the moments and thought the moments were quite effective when those thoughts brought in other factual information, as it were. So, for instance, there's there's a moment where he plays a game and he comes off the pitch and he thinks to himself, oh, if only Arthur Shrewsbury had been playing in this in this game. And we know that Grace was a great admirer of Arthur Shrewsbury and, and apparently had, you know, did say, oh, he would always have been the first name that I would put on any team sheet. Um and what's that so there's that kind of factual element and also it leads into the telling of the the kind of remarkable and tragic story of Arthur Shrewsbury's death he committed suicide um, believing that he had an illness that was going to stop him from playing cricket for the rest of his life or probably not having an illness that was going to stop him from playing cricket for the rest of his life um, so I found that quite 
effective when it kind of draws in other cricketing history to kind of enrich it. Um, I found it kind of slightly more meandering when it was stuff like the, um, you know, Grace taking a trip in a motor car for the first time and thinking to himself, oh, it's unusual to be moving forward while not staring at the hind end of a horse, which I thought was, a, you know, maybe that is true. Um, but, um, I yeah, some of that more kind of... Um, sort of bonnet drama stuff i felt i felt mm. was slightly less um effective uh, whereas sticking to the cricket i thought um was where this mm, was at mm. its strongest i mean you've referenced um the tragedy around arthur shrewsbury and and this is one of the things that we we know that part of grace's life um and we the, the early death of his brother fred and of his daughter bessie and eldest son yep. william but I think reading this did bring home to me quite how much those final years of his life were um, tainted, or, or, or I mean, tainted is maybe not strong enough, or were, were overshadowed by tragedy. Um, because it, at some point in the book, it feels like a sort of procession, doesn't it? It's like, oh God, we've just dealt with one tragedy yeah, and we have yeah, another, yeah. another tragedy, and it, it, seeing it in this form does rather does rather bring that home. And it's that contrast, isn't it, between someone who's being on one hand fated as this sporting titan and the other hand having to deal with um yeah all this this tragedy closer to home and it was similar with the war stuff as well wasn't it you know you suddenly get this picture of what it would actually have been like in terms of you know the there's the theory of the war and you know wanting to mm. um uh you know um get people to sign up and then suddenly this kind of realization of the absolute sort of horror mm. of it as well Oh, I think that sort of guilt, isn't it, about sort of having said, look, young men must all go off to war and then suddenly thinking, why, why did I encourage anyone to do this? We did lis listen in this podcast a while back to an audio play and I remember about Grace's life and I remember that being very strong on his terror around the Zeppelins and, and that being mm. something that I think particularly later in life it was just a sort of new horror to deal with. Um, now, now, when I told... Um, my uh, wife that we were reading this for the podcast she slightly rolled our eyes and said god this must be the hundredth book about wg grace you've read um and we've read a few and i guess i'd be interested in your view if someone was saying i want to read a book about wg grace as a way into him would into him as a figure would you point them in the direction of the histories would you point them in the direction of this where, where would be a good start for someone to be, as, as you say this to be honest I can't actually remember the other books about WG Grace that we've read um, this is the problem by the time you get to episode 165 it, it is it is and when you're as well read in WG Grace <laughs> bibliographies as we are um, apparently despite forgetting them all um, I do I mean look I have to say I did struggle with I, I found moments of interest in this book but as a whole I did kind of slightly struggle with it i think a large reason of that is a large part of the reason for that is that i am pretty allergic to historical fiction um and it does it does kind of leave me um cold and seem a bit absurd to me so i am not the right audience for this given that you don't share my deep-seated prejudices would you recommend this to someone as a 
WG Grace intro. I, I, I think I wouldn't recommend it as an intro. I reckon um, start with one of the histories, and then I think this is a sort of new angle and a new way in. Um, so I think that would probably be my way around. I think this is a book to read once you've once you've sort of. Um, I'm trying to think of a food metaphor, and I'm going to fail. But I think once you've sort of had your um, your main course, this is a nice sort of. Um, a dessert, I guess. <laughs> not, not, I'll need to work on that one. But um, I do think it also reminded me that it's funny that this genre doesn't exist more in cricket. You know, we, we as in I can't think. I'm sure you know that there are examples that we're we're, we're forgetting. But well, what you know, was that book that we read recently? We were both sleep deprived new parents, so this is why we can't remember anything. But what was that book we read recently about the? Um, like test batsman that was actually pretty oh, that was actually by pretty Nathan good Lehman. yeah the test there you go yes which was actually which was actually pretty good and not necessarily historical in yes. the same way and it was kind of just out of, but but enough of kind yeah. of real life in it um, yeah. I think it's but yeah you're right maybe there is more maybe this is the beginning this is maybe this is when I quit the podcast because you suggest that we do a string of historical yeah. novels and we unearth that there is actually a rich seam of them of, of cricket it feels like a genre that that's there, or, or we can both go and write them. You know, why hasn't anyone done, um, you know, uh, historical fiction, Atherton in Johannesburg, Bradman in Bodyline? Maybe these things do exist. It's so true. But um, I reckon, I reckon this is how we make our millions. Now, listen. So this was the 165th episode of Reverse Rep Radio. We're not going to record another one for a little while because we're both going to be furiously writing <laughs> novels, um, exploring great moments in in cricket history. Um, and making quite a lot of it up along the way. It's actually quite a kind of puts you in a position of power as an author to be able to just, you know, mm. kind of just put words into people's mouths and sort of, you know, um, uh, e- extrapolate as you will. Um, so find us over on Twitter, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And um, that was that. Mm-hmm.